Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And after reading what Lex has to say about the psychedelic storytelling time that took place in Los Angeles on the 26th of April this year, I am really anxious to hear it. That was uh, actually the night before Symposia's Blue Dot Tour came here to San Diego, and uh, I can remember how excited they all were about the previous night's storytelling session in L.A. Uh, Actually, uh, (laughs) since I was at the San Diego event, I was hoping that they would podcast the L.A. session before the one in San Diego, because, uh, well, since I was there, I'd already heard the San Diego stories, but now I don't have to wait anymore. So, here's Lex. Today's episode is made possible through your crowdfunded support on Patreon. Unlike other crowdfunding sites, Patreon allows you to chip in a few bucks a month to help us keep the lights on. Check it out at patreon.com slash symposia. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. This week we have some great storytelling from the City of Angels, with former police officer Michael Wood, Ultraculture's Jason Liu, and a bunch of other guests who know how to fathom hell or soar angelic. But first, I have my own story to tell. This summer, I'm going out to Dr. Bruce Damer's house, who some of you probably know from the Psychedelic Salon or his other work around science, NASA, and the origin of life. But he also is the proud possessor of everything else that was in Timothy Leary's archives that the New York Public Library didn't want. And that includes 16 giant plastic bins from a press clipping service that Dr. Leary had that cut out everything in the popular press with the word drug in it starting from the early 60s all the way through the 90s. And so it's a really unique archive. It is pretty much the complete popular response to this psychedelic revolution. Being the psychedelic historian that I am, that means my goal for the summer is to spend it on his farm digitizing this unique archive to be put on Earwid and archive.org so people can always use it from here on out. And so I am driving across the country, leaving New York uh, almost by the time that this is out. And we'll be out there turning this archive into something that will be forever searchable. So if that interests any of you out there and you want to volunteer to help, feel free to reach out to me at pelger at gmail.com. P-E-L-G-E-R at gmail.com. Any assistance would be much appreciated. And I think you'll get a glimpse at something that not many people get to see until we free it for the world. If you want to see more about this project, I'll have additional info on my website at lexpelger.com. And if you'd like to support the saving of this unique history for posterity, please consider supporting the work on my own Patreon. It's called No Nonsense Productions because it includes this psychedelic history project. It includes my work hosting this podcast and for writing my graphic novel series, People of the Cannabinoids, which are my pot books based on Moby Dick, that order people to talk to their grandparents about weed. Also, I just want to say thank you for all the 
emails that people already sent in about questions and comments about the podcast. We are sitting, reading, listening to everyone, figuring out what works and what doesn't. And so thanks for all your comments. Please keep them coming in. They all get read. We couldn't do it without you. Well, we could, but it wouldn't be any fun. So now on to the stories. mental health advocate and I run a blog about being diagnosed with mental illness and using psychedelics to help me live a functional life without being on prescription pills. So I'm just going to explain a little bit about what I'm diagnosed with. It's bipolar 1 and borderline personality disorder. So you picture a person's baseline emotions. We all go up and down, sad and happy, but when it comes to bipolar, it's basically going very quickly and sometimes for a rhyme or reason. I can suddenly wake up and be enraged and I can suddenly shift and be happy. And then with the double diagnosis, when it comes to borderline, is those ups and downs are exasperated to the highest extent. So when I'm angry, I'm rageful and violent. And when I'm happy, I'm euphoric and I have feelings of invincibility and these all lead to very dangerous situations. When I was younger, I would go look for fights and when I would get angry, I would get violent, or when I get sad, it's absolute depression. Um, so I've been struggling with this for about 10 years. I've survived five suicide attempts, and I was just diagnosed a few months ago. Because I grew up in a time where we don't talk about mental illness, we don't talk about you know, what's happening in our brains. So um, that's just a little lowdown on what it's like to live with this. Um, another serious symptom that the psychedelics have helped is this feeling of fragmentation. With all these different emotions I feel inside of me, I start to fragment. I start feeling like I'm living with seven different people inside of me, and I never know, you know, if my fiance is going to be experiencing the angry Rachel or I'm going to wake up and be the happy Rachel. So over time, I start to struggle with all these people inside of me, and it starts to make me lose my mind because I don't know who I am. Um, so the one thing I do when I trip once a month, which is what my treatment is, is I meditate on wholeness and, you know, all these personalities are able to come into one. And the only way I can describe it is there's these shatters of my consciousness that I have to deal with. And when I meditate, when I'm high, the only way I can describe it is like a cosmic glue, and it pulls everything together and, you know, forms me back into one person. You know, I'm not these personalities anymore. I'm not, you know, all these mood swings anymore. I'm Rachel again, and I am the person that I know again. So I just want to describe a little bit about that. Um, most people don't get this kind of self-awareness or clarity to be able to explain what these diseases are doing inside of them. I had no idea all this was happening until I started using psychedelics. I wasn't able to visualize the graph of the ups and downs, and what these magical medicines were able to do was bring me outside of myself as an intellectual observer of my mental illness. For the past four years of using them, they've been guiding me in revealing the patterns of emotions that I cannot make sense of on my own. When I'm low, that's the only thing I know is truth, and when I'm high, that's the only thing I've ever known. I'm a prisoner of whatever reality my brain decides for me, but the psychedelics were able to give me a blueprint of the prison. 
Another thing that psychedelics have done is help with fragmentation. I heavy trip once a month to keep my mental health in check. When I meditate on all the personalities, they stop tearing me apart and fighting. I come back together as one whole being. The only way I can describe it is I can feel the shadows of my consciousness pulled back together into a complete peace and repair. The psychedelic's ability to help me heal mentally goes beyond the trip and have given me a quality of life I never thought possible. It takes a lot of work, but they're not medicating my mental illness or masking the symptoms. They regulate the chemicals in my brain and guide me on a path where my disease... My diseases are not something I can make go away, but I can learn how to live with them by understanding them. Also, for the past two weeks, I've been practicing microdosing. It's been helping my day-to-day -day functionality a lot better than I expected. I honestly believe the combination of microdosing and periodic trips are going to help me fight this fight even better. Not only do they help repair my broken brain, but they've detailed my soul in depths that I didn't know were possible. They're the best medicine I could ask for. I would be in a lot more turmoil had they not found their way into my life looking to heal. Another major impact, you know, using psychedelics is I use them with my fiance, the love of my life. And when we trip together, he is able to deal with the emotions that he goes through with living with a woman with mental illness. And he gets a perspective and a healing that only, in my opinion, that he can find on these drugs. He can explain to me his fears and he can be honest with me about how terrifying it is to live with me at times. And, you know, when we're tripping, we're able to look at that wholly, like I said, as outside observers. So that has brought healing to my love life and a healing to my brain. And, you know, lastly, the only way I can describe it is uh, there's this ancient Japanese art where broken pottery is repaired with gold, and it creates a new piece of pottery, but it's still the same. And you can see the gold, and you can see the cracks, you can see all these things that have been broken, but it becomes a new, beautiful object, you know? So I've been broken my entire life, and my brain has been broken, and my consciousness has been broken. I get ripped in and out of these realities, you know? And there were parts of me that weren't broken that had to be shattered, but these drugs shattered. And then they built them back up with this gold, and now I'm a new piece of pottery, and since then, they've been doing nothing but filling me up with what they need to fill me up with. So I'm grateful for them, and the only reason I'm still alive and able to function in society is because of what they've done for me. So that's just, I advocate for it. I advocate for mental illness. That's what my ribbon is for, and I advocate for psychedelics to be used to help with people that are struggling. And, their brains are broken and these struggles are helping. So. My name is TJ, and uh, Lex just asked me about 10 minutes ago if I would speak, and I said I would, and then he asked me a minute ago if I would go second, so I said. <laughs> <laughs> Currently, I'm working on a. I've been working for years now on a dissertation, uh, and I'm. I'm. It turns out I'm studying 5-MeO DMT, and we're, we're we're looking. We're going to do a qualitative study of, of some experiences that are happening at a clinic uh, south of the border, and it's all legal and really cool and, and empirical and the whole the whole thing. So, we have uh, here Joseph, who eventually will be on my committee. I promise <coughs> you're going to get there, and uh, so we're looking at some very cool stuff. And so uh, 
obviously I got to this point of wanting to know more about psychedelics because of the experiences that I've had on psychedelics. What the hell is that? What's going on? And, and uh, you're looking at someone who, I mean, I, born, I had a congenital medical condition, and so for years, it's what, what is this? Why? What's going on? We all are asking ourselves this question in some way. And so when I have these psychedelic experiences, it's centered, it's, uh, often I'm thinking, obviously, about my, my, my being and my place and why me and what's going on and what should I do about it. So there's, that's sort of underscoring all of my experiences and what drives me or what has driven me to want to try one and another and another and another. It's, it's God, right? It's, it's, it's this experience of together or something, whatever it is that can't be spoken. It's that thing which when you have it, it slips through your fingers and... But it's this amazing thing. So some of the more profound experiences, uh, as a person who I was raised in the Catholic Church, I would expect to have like some angelic and very coherent divine experiences. And it's usually the opposite of that. It's not <laughs> coherent at all. And, and in fact, some of the more memorable experiences are ones which are just totally outrageous and ones which I would not have expected at all. And so the first one I'll mention well, I, I will mention that it was psilocybin, which, which was my introduction, and which was, for me, for a long time, one of my favorites. But finally, it was uh, an N-dimethyltryptamine, which really sort of uh, <clears throat> helped me to understand the absurdity and, and the paradoxicality and, and start to help me with the dualism here and the thing. But it was uh, an experience with NNDMT where, you know, you go in the thing, and, and then all of a sudden, there's this entity appearing in front of me, which many of you may have this experience with, and NDMT is relatively common, these discarded entities, and they appear, they're there. There was a couple over here, and there was one right in front of me. And, and um, in fact, it looked very much like this scene. Maybe this is the scene, I don't know. It was, it was, a, uh, <laughs> it was, it was a kitchen like this, and there was in front of me a woman sitting on a kitchen counter with her legs crossed, and she was smoking a cigarette. And I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Because why the hell? Because you know, I'm expecting God or God's representative. <laughs> and she's smoking a cigarette. And so I and there are some others in the room. I just laughed out loud. And the others in the room, they noticed that I was laughing like this, like just joyous, you know, ear to ear. And in fact, I heard one of them say, I want to know what he's seeing, that kind of thing. And, and it was this absurd situation, and I thought it was just hilarious. And instantly the message I got was, you know, first of all, I'm right here. I've always been here. And I'm on break right now because you're here. And, and, and that, was, that was the message. And so I kind of thought, oh, all right, so nothing to worry about. And also, it's kind of funny, and I shouldn't be so serious. Everything's fine. And so, you know, and I guess I don't know if it was in retrospect or, or during the thing that occurred to me that this was in some form or whatever, this is an angel or a guardian of mine, and that in some way this entity or being or consciousness is, is with me and looking over me and, and helping throughout the thing. But the message then was, I'm here, we're here. There's a lot more than what you think going on. That was the big message, right? The first one is like, you know, your little box and parameters, they're, they're, they're little. And, and so there's a lot more going on and way outside the, the usual models. And so, okay, we're here. Uh, don't take it all so seriously, it's fine. And was there another message there somewhere? Anyway, it was, it was, uh, it was that. So that was one experience with NNDMT. It was just wonderful. My name is Jason Louv, and I'm into magic, right? Or 
Magic with a K. And uh, Magic with a K, as I'm sure many of, this is, a, as we've already established, a muggle-free zone, so I'm just going to be totally, thank you, I'm going to be totally open. Um, so Magic is, I look at it like this, for to put it like this for this audience. Um, if psychedelics, like let's say psilocybin, you know, you take and you get a six-hour experience and you're like, uh, I just want to go to sleep, you know, you're just getting download, you're getting the download, the download. Um, and it's out of your control. Uh, magic is a programming language or a targeting system for saying, okay, I just want this. I just want to talk to the god Ganesh. I just want to talk to this part of myself. I just want to talk to the god Hermes. I just want to talk to this dark part of myself or this higher part of myself. Uh, I want to talk to an angel, whatever it happens to be. That's what magic is. It's a protocol. It's a system. And it doesn't need to go with psychedelics. It can, it's, it can be done in 15 minutes, completely sober, once you get good at it. Um, but it can also be done with the psychedelic experience. And when we combine them, as I'm sure many of you know, whether it's magic or some other sacred discipline, that's when you get the real downloads. Right? Um, now, let me ask you a question. All that aside, the psychedelic experience, what's the number one most important lesson of the psychedelic experience. There's lots, right? You're but what, okay, that's a good one. <laughs> Anyone else? You are not your mind. What is it? You are not just your mind. You are not just your mind? Excellent. Uh, okay, I shouldn't say the most important. <laughs> so it's like, what's, what's the most important for you? Anybody? Yes? It's all about love. It's all about love. Excellent. Being honest yeah. with yourself and others. Excellent. Okay, yes. Yes. We are perfect. Yes. Mm -hmm. Everything changes. Everything changes. So, yes. Once you get the message, hang Also, very good. Yes, that's a good one. Yes. Or somebody, someone else. Show up. Show up. Anyone else? Dissolving of ego. Dissolving of ego. Excellent. So, yes. All right. So, for me, that's what it was. For me, it was let go. That was the most important message for me. And that's always what I tell people when they ask me about the psychedelic experience. I tell them, let go. Because, as we all know, if you're hanging on and you're clenched up and you're, and you're not into it and you haven't let go, then you're going to have a bad time until the, the, the medicine forces you to let go. So for me, when I trip, I, I preemptively let go. And, and people who are into yoga, for instance, know how to do that very well. Um, so I want to tell a story about let, letting go. Um, and so, uh, so for a little bit about me, for the last 20 years... I have spent nearly all of my time immersing myself in the world's esoteric and spiritual and occult traditions and going all around the world and meeting people to learn uh, from Sufism, Hindu Tantra, Buddhism, neurolinguistic programming, uh, uh, everything I could get my hands on. I've been through a couple dozen different systems. You could say I have ADD or you could just say I'm really curious. Um, I come from a journalistic background and so I will go and I will just immerse myself into something and take it fully on for like a year and then shift into something else. And that's what I, that's, uh, this process is called chaos magic. Chaos magic is the idea that there is no one, no one truth. There's no one true system. So what you should really do is experience life from as many different angles as possible. Become a Sufi. Do it seriously. Become a Sufi for a year. Become a Tantric for a year. Become uh, a cynical madman advertising executive for a year. I did that one too, you know. Become, a, become um, whatever it is, you know, or, or, or yoga or, or um, 
uh, psychedelics, you know, psychedelic shamanism, things like that. So, so that's what I've been up to, and I've put out several books about it. And, and but so I, I, it's hard for me to narrow down in one story, but I'm just going to tell this one story, which is about the process of letting go. When I was 23, I was uh, working on my first book, and I was in London. And some of you may know or may remember, there was this great, glorious period in London in the early 2000s when psilocybin mushrooms were legal for like two years. And you could just buy them in open markets. You could, like I went to Portobello Road Market. I was there for a year, and I went to Portobello Road Market, and they'd just be selling them. You could go into head shops, and they'd have them in fridges, and they'd give you, they were selling grow kits. So I bought a couple psilocybin grow kits, and I brought them back to my apartment. And, of course, you have to keep it at a certain temperature to grow them. So I had, like, the, the, the heater like the heater on and the, and the apartment on at exactly 80 degrees or whatever it is the entire time. It's driving my roommate nuts. But, uh, but I got lots of psilocybin mushrooms. So I was spent, like, I must have spent, like, four or five months just doing psilocybin and ritual magic all day long every day while working on a book. <laughs> and um, so I learned to let go really quick. Um, and uh, so I was just like going in and in and in and trying to get more and more. It's like when you're young, you overdo everything. So, um, so I was just like, and, and for me, and I'm sure many of you probably resonate with this, with this experience. For me, um, I didn't really feel fully happy uh, until I had taken psilocybin mushrooms. I didn't really feel like a full human being until I take psilocybin mushrooms. There's something about that that it's like, it's almost like it's the missing piece. It fits in and it makes you feel more human, right? And so, so after, but, you know, so I finally I got this message, you know, I was getting through this upbringing as a very rational, very hard-headed, very cynical, very, uh, you know, I was a I was a goth teenager, you know, like I was just over, I was over the world at 14. And so getting through, breaking through that character armoring, as Wilhelm Reich would have put it, was one of the most profoundly evolutionary periods of my life when I became a convert. And, but I got this message, let go, let go, let go. And, and I got, and I got so good at tripping that it got to be my favorite game became taking mushrooms and forcing myself not to trip. I was like, taking mushrooms, like, can I meditate so severely strong that I just reject all, you know, I just like, I stay completely sober. So I would sit there and take a bunch of mushrooms and then drink cheap English beer while listening to The Clash. And just like meditate, just like, I'm not going to trip. I have so much willpower. Okay, that's one way you can do it. Uh, or you can just let go. So I got to a point where I let go. And I... And then I had an experience in my life where, as you said, when you get the message, put down the phone. And, that, and when I began to not just take psychedelics, but apply psychedelic lessons to life, that's when life got really magical. So how many people in here, let me ask, have had an experience where you've relaxed, you've let go, you've decided to stop controlling, and then life got really magical all of a sudden? How many people had... Raise your hand and say aye. Wow, I'm impressed. The whole group of psychedelic trippers who actually haven't said aye. I thought you were all supposed to have no ego. Okay, maybe it was just performed. Um, but it's about practically the whole room, right? So, so this is when I learned that profound uh, lesson that we've all learned, which is um, I decided to start traveling around. So I started traveling around Europe and going to old hermetic sites and Europe is fucking expensive, right? So I started to run out of money, and I was like, what do I do now? And I decided maybe I should go to India. Yeah, that's like what spiritual people do, right? You know, like, that, that sounds cool. That's like a psychedelic thing to do. So, um, 
So I book a ticket to India, and I was still in college at this point, and so I was, I was on my year abroad. And I, I book a ticket to India, and it turns out my final exam for my course is on the day that I was supposed to leave. So I go to the, I go to the travel agent, you know, I didn't know I had, so I go to the travel agent and I say, look, I, the day changed, can I change my date? And they said, no, we can't, we, we have no more tickets for you. So immediately, punched out, what are you talking about? I paid for this ticket, what, what, what are you talking about? Like, and we've all done this, right? It's like, no, I refuse, like, you have to, you have to give me the ticket, you know? And they're like, no, we can't do it, you can't do it. So immediately, I'm trying to start trying to control my environment. And then, then she says, well, we could, after I start to kick up a bit of a fuss, she says, well, we could fly you to Kathmandu. And I said, well, how much would that cost? And she said, she said well, it'll be, it'll be the same price, but uh, why not? And, and uh, or I said, why not? Okay, fine, fine. I'll go to Kathmandu. God. <laughs> and um, so, I get the, so I get my ticket. So that sounds fine because I figured I can just go and then I can buy a plane ticket back to India or take a bus to India. Very next day, Nepal has gone into civil war. Uh, fuck. Okay. So I go and, and, I, and, and I'm looking on the news and it's like, Nepal is in civil war. There's a Maoist insurgency uprising. They're firebombing the buses going to India. It's like, fuck. Okay. So I think, well, this ticket was $500. I'm going to lose the money if I didn't go. All right, I'm just going to let go. I'm going to apply what I learned. I'm going to let go. I'm going to do it. So I go and I land. And has anyone ever been to... Kathmandu. Okay, if you haven't gone, you have to go. It's the most psychedelic place on earth. You go there, it's one valley, and it's a place where Buddhists, Hindus, and animistic shamans have all been sharing <laughs> sacred sites and, and practices and belief systems for uh, a couple thousand years, uh, certainly back to the 1400s. It's the last magical tantra kingdom on earth. Uh, very sadly, it is, it is, a lot of it has been destroyed now by the earthquake, the recent earthquake. But you go in and it's just prayer flags and temples and, and giant Buddhist stupas and spires and incense smoke and the sound of chanting and the sound of people running and animals and it's fucking phenomenal. And so I went in and I just immediately was like, okay, this is great. I'm so glad that I'm here. It's like, I'm just going to relax. This is so great. So I go and I go start. I, I, I'm sitting in the city town square, Durbar Square, which has now been destroyed by the earthquake. And I, uh, this kid comes up to me. And he's a tour guide. He wants to know where he can take me. And I have been looking at my Lonely Planet, and I've seen that there's shamans still practicing in Nepal. And I said, well, do you know anything about shamanism? Uh, shamanism? He said, sure, I can take you up into the hills, and we can learn about shamanism. They practice it in my village. So I go, okay. And at this point in the trip, I'm like, all right, I'm just enjoying this. I'm letting go, like, whatever. And uh, so we go up into the mountains. We meet the shamans, and... The first thing I ask them is, is shamanism real? And the first thing they ask me is, is pro wrestling real? <laughs> and that's when I realized reality was, you know, it was going to do that. So, um, but I got to see their, you know, what I came to realize was I had this idea. It's like, you know, I was consuming this stuff. Like Terrence McKenna, that, Dan, that first Daniel Pinchback book had just come out, and I was reading this stuff, and I had this idea of psychedelic shamanism. Shamanism, and I, I went and I said, that's really not the case. What shamanism really is in most places is it's a plan B for when there's no medical care available. It's, you know, if we can't get access to medical care, then we do essentially occult rituals. And that's what uh, that's what magic was in, in Europe, in the... 
in the Middle Ages. It's very similar. It was, you know, it's kind of the same around the world. And so, long story short, I they performed a ritual. I got to witness a ritual where they were going through the three different worlds: the celestial, the terrestrial, the infernal worlds. And then, of course, and 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 it was beautiful, and I got to stay there, and so just amazing meeting people who were just totally without guile, totally without this, you know, insectile front that Western people have. What can I manipulate? What can I get? And totally without that. And um, and uh, so, but the guy looked at me and he said, you know, you you would probably be good at this. We can train you at this. I said, okay, you know, again, okay, why not? My tour guide says, no, like, you know, you're going to go crazy. And so I, I demonstrated a bunch of Western magical rituals, like the Western magical ritual pentagram and all the hermetic rituals, Kabbalistic rituals. And he was like, okay, you won't go crazy. You're already crazy. <laughs> so, so long story short, we're coming to the end of the time. But I, so I got to spend almost a month learning shamanism. And I learned later that there, throughout that entire pra- uh, process, Maoist insurgents uh, were attempting to kidnap me. Whoa. And my guide was paying them off to not kidnap me and didn't tell me because he thought that I would run away and stop paying him. So, um, But when I came out, and I got to India after this, but I, when I, what I took out of this was I realized all I did was I let go and I believed and I had faith and I was able to walk into a war zone and come out and everything was fine. I didn't even get food poisoning. And all these incredible experiences happened. And how often do we forget this in life where we believe all these things that are going to happen, and, oh, you know, like, traffic is going to be so fucking terrible, I can't even go outside today, um, <laughs> if you live in L.A. Um, how often do we get into this mindset where we just let go and had a little faith, there's a taboo word in Western, Western era culture right now, if we just had a little faith and believed and let go, and how wonderful would things, how magical would things be truly all the time, all the time, so... And that's my story. Thank you for having me. I'm really grateful to be here. I've had the luck, actually, of witnessing symposia in, in various cities uh, around the country. You know, um, I don't know if you guys were, how many people here were at Psychedelic Science? Well, a lot of you were, but uh, it was a big deal this year. Um, it was, I would describe it as booming. Um, and, uh, and symposia, was, of course, was huge there. Um, and uh, everywhere they've gone, they've brought, you know, it's kind of amazing. I, I have to say these guys are brilliant geniuses, but they're not the most organized people, and what's amazing is they just seem to manifest crowds, much like this one, wherever they go. It's chaos magic. Yeah, chaos magic, exactly. So or a bunch of monkeys I can attest that, uh, I can attest it's really like amazing to see their effect on, on, on every city they seem to go to. Um, I should explain, yes, we did something called the Hypnotic Bar in New York, we did it three times, and actually it's a demonstration that uh, it is possible to induce all drug and alcohol states without drugs or alcohol, simply using trance. And uh, uh, there is a catch. The catch is that not everyone can do it, but about a quarter of the population can. Uh, but Lex, uh, actually, Mark made me prom- Mike made me promise not to hypnotize anybody tonight. But I thought the catch is if you want, you can hypnotize yourself. Uh, I can't hypnotize you. But um, we're not, we're, it's a different topic tonight. We're not doing the trance, but if you want to know more about it, I'm hoping actually to bring the show uh, through here next fall. It's called the Hypnotic Bar. Uh, so anyways, uh, I, I do have a story, and like the previous speaker, I uh, was uh, journal- journalistically inclined. I'm still a journalist. I'm actually 
here shooting a, a documentary um, with my, my producer. And my producer, actually, when we were coming here, he hasn't, he hasn't been that exposed to that much psychedelic uh, culture. And he said, is there going to be bongos? And um, <laughs> I assured him that there would be no bongos. And, there isn't, and he's very happy about that. Anyways, um, uh, I should explain that uh, as a journalist, I was covering a story and about 10 years ago in Canada. There was a really weird moment in Canadian law where uh, medical marijuana became legal, uh, but uh, the general prohibition against marijuana still stood. And one lawyer had a brilliant idea. Uh, he basically found a guy who had been busted in a very kind of uh, rudimentary way. Standard way was in a park smoking a joint. He got busted by the police. And he, and he actually thought that maybe the law against gen the general prohibition against marijuana wouldn't stand. And so he um, uh, took it to court. And he basically, by finding this sort of loophole that, that basically the, the medical marijuana law, and sorry, it's a bit complicated, uh, was thrown out because people with epilepsy had demonstrated that medical marijuana helped people with epilepsy. They had he, he made the case that the general prohibition against marijuana endangered people with epilepsy because the, the, the evidence for marijuana helping people with epilepsy was, so, epilepsy was so clear. So at that moment, the judge said, you're right, and right then and there, in one day, they threw out the entire uh, marijuana prohibition for, for Canada uh, in, in, in uh, one afternoon. And there's a fellow in Canada uh, known as Mark Emery. He's kind of a wild uh, guy. Uh, he's known in Canada as the Prince of Pot. And when he saw that the, the law had been thrown out, he seized on the moment. He said uh, marijuana is effectively legal. And he started a campaign, basically, to travel across the country uh, smoking enormous, in some cases, 14-foot joints, um, specifically in front of police stations, <laughs> to demonstrate that he could not be arrested or that it was legal. And uh, I was a reporter, and this was a very awkward for me, because as a reporter, I would arrive, and people would be smoking a legitimate 14-foot joint in front of, let's say, the Calgary police station, and I would just have to ask very neutral questions, like, you know, uh, how do you feel about the current prohibition against marijuana? Well, you know, you know, not partaking, but being a, standing close enough that I was very affected. Uh, so uh, uh, the interesting thing about Mark Emery is that he quickly became a multimillionaire. And he didn't do it by, by these joints. He had a very brilliant idea, which was that at the time, marijuana still was technically illegal, uh, maybe in Canada and the U.S., but selling marijuana seeds, at least in Canada, was not. Uh, and he saw himself as a Johnny sort of Appleseed character <laughs> spreading uh, marijuana seeds around the country. And um, uh, he sold them all across Canada, became very wealthy, and then he had this brilliant idea. Uh, America has a lot more people in America, and they sell them into the States. And this was his fatal error, because uh, the DEA, DEA, of course, uh, your friends, um, came after him. Uh, make a long story short, he had so much money, though, for a while, and he knew kind of like his time was running out, he would host these huge conferences, or huge in that they were well-financed, on entheogens, and he would invite people like uh, Rick Doblin and uh, people from MAPS, and, the, and they would all show up and talk about drugs. Now, he had so many people talking about so many different drugs, and, and you've probably experienced this before. If you spend an entire day talking about, let's say, the science of drugs, usually by nighttime, you kind of want to do those drugs. It's just, the, just the way it works. And so um, they would have these parties, and I went as a neutral reporter, uh, and I was working with another guy who was a very straight journalist guy named uh, Sean. And both of us, I said, Sean, we're going to go to a party. And I said, there's probably going to be a lot of drugs, just to let you know. Uh, and when we got there, it was, it was more than we imagined. There was a, a buffet, and it really was a buffet, a, a huge table. And it had a series of bowls. So there was like an ecstasy bowl, mushroom bowl, various kinds of marijuana bowl, liquid LSD, vials, uh, DMT. It was all like, it was just like a buffet. 
And uh, uh, I was like, um, I said, okay, I'll, I'll do the ecstasy. And uh, so I did, I did quite a bit of ecstasy. And my friend Sean, I think he didn't know what to do, and he said, uh, I'll try the LSD. <laughs> I was like, are you sure? I didn't know, he seemed to know what he was doing. So uh, he actually talked to Mark Emery himself. Mark Emery said, here, here, he had a vial of liquid LSD. And I just remember him going, this was the motion. It was like, squirt into his mouth. No! I remember thinking, yeah, no. Uh-oh. Anything, anyway, sorry. Everything was okay for a little while. Uh, then uh, my, um, uh, my friend actually, uh, I, I looked over at one point, and I saw that he was taking off all his clothes. And so um, I just went over to him and I said, like, uh, uh, why are you taking off your, cl- your clothes? And he was like, what? What? Uh, I didn't realize it, so he put his clothes back on, and then uh, a few minutes later he was taking his clothes off again, uh, and he started to show some distress, and so I said to like whoever was in charge, you know, I think my friend's kind of having trouble, and they said, uh, okay, well, um, uh, we'll call the trip goddesses, and I don't know if they were, uh, at this point I'm on ecstasy, and then all of a sudden I see these like beautiful women with long flowing hair, very like um, earth goddess types, and they arrive and they start talking to him. They're, they're, it was very beautiful for me because I was sort of trying to explain the world to him. They're like, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. You don't need to take your clothes off. You're fine. Um, and it worked for a while. It was quite amazing. It worked for a while. Then, of course, he took off, ran out the door, and ran into traffic. And uh, I remember chasing him through this downtown Vancouver. I'm chasing him through traffic. Uh, and we, I had to literally tackle him and drag him back into the place. Uh, and then um, we, uh, I, I, of course, I said, you're not going to try jumping out a window, are you? Because I thought he was, like, he was doing all the acid cliches. Uh, and I should not have said that because a few minutes later, I caught him at a window trying to like, open it. Luckily, he was too incoherent. Anyways, as the night went on, uh, it got kind of even uh, weirder. At one point, he said to me, I really need to go to the bathroom. So I said, okay, I'll take you to the bathroom. We go to the bathroom. And, uh, he goes in for a while and comes out. And he says, he comes out. He looks at me. He says, uh, "I don't know. How, I don't know what to do." And I'm like, uh, "Well, you just..." Uh, so I, have to, I found myself explaining to somebody you know, how you go to the bathroom. Number one. So this is how you go to the bathroom. I explained the whole thing to him. And then uh, he uh, came out after a while and says, "Like, I don't understand." <laughs> so. There are a lot of things that friends might find themselves doing for friends. Uh, but one of the weirdest ones I've had to do is help uh, another friend and, uh, uh, you know, go to the bathroom in a urinal. And um, so, you know, that night I discovered, like, quite high on ecstasy that, you know, it's quite possible to do. And uh, uh, so I helped my friend uh, pee in the toilet and, uh, and everything was fine. Uh, it took a, about the rest of the night for him to recover, but here's sort of the weird part. A few weeks later, uh, Mark Emery, of course, uh, was arrested. Uh, he was arrested by the American DEA, and it's a, it's a big sore point in Canada because the DEA came into Canada, took Mark Emery away, uh, went to jail for five years uh, in South Carolina, of all places. Uh, he learned to play the bass, apparently, <laughs> while in jail. Uh, and then he... Um, Finally just got released uh, probably about eight months ago, and now he's back in Canada as a free man. He's getting in trouble again. He opened up a bunch of marijuana shops before the law uh, has changed. But the weird thing about this whole experience is all these crazy things that Mark Henry did, including the party, and some, obviously a lot of other people did as well, not just him, was that now, as of three months ago, partly because of all, this, uh, all these shenanigans, uh, the Canadian government has passed a law, or announced they're passing a law that will legalize marijuana. Now, for California, it's maybe not a big deal, 
but for the entire country of Canada, we're legalizing marijuana next year, uh, and partly because of uh, these crazy uh, events that took place. And it was glad to be sort of witness to all the strangeness. That's my story. Thanks. I'm Michael Wood, um, best known for being a police reform activist, being a whistleblower from Baltimore and the police department there, and exploring uh, what reality of policing is in our time right now and what it's always been, because really the curtain's just revealed. And the other thing is for leading the veterans movement going up the standing rock to fight the pipeline. And I'm going to tell you a quick story about now, really, because I had no idea what I was going to talk about coming in here, because we're talking about psychedelics. And psychedelics are something that is different, really, for everybody. And everybody's experience that you hear is very anecdotally different. It's, it's a new horizon for them. So I just didn't understand how I was going to apply that to what would be important for you to take home to yourselves from this idea. So where I really kind of am known for is... I was an endeavoring scholar while I was a Baltimore police officer, and I was a shift commander there. And I was in the world of Freddie Gray, the environment, and I was looking at the product of policing and trying to figure out and becoming obsessed with systems. What does that translate from the policy and the decisions we make to this product that I'm getting on the ground? And so being a systems expert, what does that mean for us in psychology? Well, I was giving this talk at Loyola a couple weeks ago, and it was focused on education, how education kind of opened these paths for me. And that's, that's what it was. I couldn't think about what it was. And, and going farther back, it's not just school education. It was the words of Zach De La Roca in Rage Against the Machine telling me to fuck the system and figure out who was really telling me, what the teacher was telling me in school, and the lies that they told us about the history and the whitewashing. So that kind of formulated a revolutionary seed and a path that was opened up. But when I was listening to you guys, I was saying, maybe it's not really the path. It's that there's doors in front of these paths that we can go to. And education really is about breaking down the walls we have in ourselves. And what, where that came from is, is I realized I had to start in my master's degree, transformational leadership is kind of like the way we're going in the future. And so that means we have to be ourselves if we're going to lead people. We can't put up these phony shows anymore. So I started to dress normal instead of dressing all pretty and proper in my gay speeches. And one of the reasons I'm not in Leap anymore is because we have a stigma about tattooing. So I started giving all my interviews with tattoos out so I could kind of break that down. <laughs> so, and it's a convenient excuse, by the way. But, so... I said, well, if that's for us, and we need to use education to break down our barriers, what do psychedelics do and have done for me and many of us is provide these keys. But there's these stigmatas that we allow to exist in our society that are blocking us, and psychedelics are one of those. So what I'm trying to just quickly leave you with is the idea that we all talk to everybody and spread our messages so that we educate and help others break down walls so that they can get those keys which will open up their pathways. Thank you.
Uh, I'm kind of like filled with nervous energy right now. I've never told this story in public before. Um, but so I'm going to do my best to tell the truth without, um, you know, hiding uh, out of embarrassment. Uh, and, and if there's room for it, I'll try, I'll try to tell a serious story in the beginning and then a funny story at the end. Um, so the story I'm going to start with is um, a serious story that sparked a period of immense change in my life. And this happened a few years ago on January 1st. Um, my friend Charles and I, that's a made-up name to protect his identity, my friend Charles and I um, uh, decided that we were going to go on a little spiritual journey on January 1st to welcome in the new year. And we were going to take with us um, a couple pals to help us along our spiritual journey. Uh, one was psilocybin via mushrooms uh, in the form of chocolate. And the other was DMT stored in a pen uh, that you can keep in your pocket and smoke on demand. So uh, for our spiritual journey, we need a spiritual setting. And we settled on Ojai, California. Um, because it's full of hippies and hot springs, it's known to be a spiritual destination, and it's uh, within a couple hours travel of Los Angeles. So we went to Ojai, and we had this vision of hanging out in hot springs uh, as the clock ticked over through midnight, as we peaked on our uh, you know mushroom experience, toked up some DMT, and then blasted off into the universe to welcome in the new year. When we arrived in Ojai, we talked to some locals and found out that the hot springs had been fenced up, uh, were no longer available to the public because someone had purchased them. People of Ojai felt that this was unfair, and I agreed with them. So we decided that we were just going to go sneak in anyway. Um, <laughs> so we asked someone, okay, like, where do we, where do we get off the road and start hiking to find this place? And we roughly pinpointed it. We said, okay, we went and we parked our cars. And then we're like, well, let's, let's, take, let's eat our chocolates now so that, you know, you know, by the time we get there, we'll be coming up. This will work great. We eat our chocolates. We start walking. We find the place where we're supposed to exit the road. There's a barbed wire fence, by the way. So we, we cross over the barbed wire fence, and we start wandering into the woods towards where we think the hot springs are. Of course, we get impossibly, indelibly lost in the dirty woods of Ojai. And uh, we just have no idea where we are. And then, bang, we are mushrooms at us. And now we're high, and we really just have to give up hope of ever finding the hot springs, make a little home for ourselves in the leaves and the spiders and the muck of the Ojai woods. And uh, since we've settled in for the night, um, we decide to uh, go ahead and do that DMT we've been saving and make this our blasting off spot. So we, we um, take our hits of DMT, and I consider opening up to my friend about some weird dreams I've been having. Um, these dreams have started making me question my sexuality. Um, they've been like homoerotic dreams. And... I've never talked to anyone about this, and it's not that I'm attracted to my friend or that he's gay, he's neither of those things, he's just someone I can trust. And so in my brain I'm rehearsing how I might open up to him about these dreams. 
and I go back and forth, like, ah, oh, come on, you got, just, just tell him you got to open up to someone about this. And then it fires back, like, no, you're going to make him uncomfortable, and, and that'll, you know, destroy this whole experience. And I fought back and forth with my psyche, and ultimately, I lost. I couldn't open him up. I decided that I couldn't open up to my friend about this. And in that moment, after I fully repressed uh, any desire to talk about this, I had a break with reality. And I entered some kind of weird state where I thought that everything I was experiencing was a dream, but actually it wasn't. And I was awake. And the weird thing about the state is that it lasted almost until dawn, for hours, far longer than mushrooms and certainly far longer than DMT, which, you know, you might know lasts very briefly. Um, and in this state, I saw all kinds of shit, <laughs> you know, both the real and the unreal. That's what made it so tricky. It was a little bit hard to tell which was which. Um, I project, I, I thought he was all kinds of people, um, you know, ex ex-lovers, you know, women I had been with. I thought he was his dog. I did all kinds of weird shit. Um, and uh, God bless him. Uh, he, you know, uh, you know, put on a great face about all the weird shit I was doing. Um, but, you, you know, ultimately, when I came to many hours later, um, I, I heard a reflection from him that it was a really scary experience. Not only because he couldn't guess what I was going to do to him or anyone we ran into, but also because he couldn't guess what I was going to do to myself. Um, like, because I was so goofy, was I going to jump off a cliff? He had actually watched me put my hands on the barbed wire to as I walked over it and, like, get cuts in my hands and you know, act like it was nothing because I didn't feel any pain. Um, and when I heard that reflection from him, it helped me commit to doing my work to um, embrace all parts of myself so that I could be um, a better friend to the people who cared about me um, as well as healing myself. So thank you for listening In 2007, my father died of squamous cell carcinoma, which is a nasty form of lung cancer. He withered away in about six months, and when he died, he lost 50 pounds, and there was nothing left on his skeleton. His funeral was in Huntington, West Virginia, a church filled with about 300 people who could not say enough nice things about my father as they were following out what a wonderful man he was, how much he helped them, what good he'd done as a deacon in that church. None of them knew my father was an abusive, controlling, narcissistic asshole who made my life hell when I was growing up. Fucked up my life for over 40 years. Took me a long time to get over it. He was gone. What was left was my mother, my relationship with her. My mother had aligned herself with my father at certain times to the extent that we hadn't spoken for years at a time sometimes. So my mother and I had this elephant in the room all the time. This hate-love relationship that I finally figured out was on my shoulders. So over the, case of, over the course of about three psilocybin trips, I figured out how to get rid of that, that I was the one carrying it. 
and that I could actually let it go. So I called her with a one-time offer. I said, if you say you're sorry right now, I will forgive you forever, and this will never come up again. And she said, I'm sorry, and I forgave her. And that was the end of it. So three weeks ago, she came up to visit because my other sister was getting married. And I decided I was going to talk to her about her relationship with my older sister who was getting married, which was really strained. My sister would not make the move to make up with her. She was really pissed about what happened with my father. I decided I could intervene. So I told her, you can talk to Stephanie right now and give her the greatest wedding present she's ever had. You can tell her you're sorry for what happened, that you're in her life now, that you're there for any time. All she has to do is pick up the phone, that you love her and you're proud of her. And she decided to do that. She decided to talk to her. And I felt great about that. And about two hours later, we were in my office. I work at home. And I forgot I had gone to a presentation about ayahuasca. And my mom said, is that that ayahuasca thing they talk about, where people go to the jungle and throw up and see visions? And I said, yeah. She said, I've always been curious about that, but I'm not going to go to the jungle or sit around for like eight hours seeing visions. Now, I had some changa. You know what changa is? It is DMT infused onto, in this case, copy leaves. This one had added harmless. So what I had was basically a smokable form of ayahuasca that will give you an intense psychedelic journey for about 10 or 15 minutes. So I said, are you curious enough that you want to experience that? It lasts about 10 minutes. And she said, yeah, I am. I said, all right, well, let me know. We can go to my meditation room and do that. I have something that will help you with that. And in the meantime, we started talking. She started unloading about what she'd gone through with my father, how he'd abused her, how he'd abused her psychologically and physically at times, and the hell that she'd gone through, and how she really couldn't stand her relationship with him but couldn't get away from him. You know, I was a kid in the 60s, and you didn't just leave your husband when you had three little kids to take care of. And she unloaded all this. She said, I've never told anybody about these things. I felt myself getting closer to her. So a few hours later, she said, I want to try that thing. So I said, all right, let's go to my meditation room. So on planet Earth, year 2017, Domini, Woodland Hills, California, in a room filled with Buddhist and Hindu symbology, psychedelic tapestries, and probably about 150 crystals, I'm handing my seven, 75-year-old mother a bowl with a spirit molecule and a pipe. <laughs> I grounded her. We did some meditation. I let her know. I said, if you have any questions for the medicine, why don't you ask it now while we're meditating? She did that. I handed her the pipe. One hit. You feel it? She said, not really. Another hit. Do you feel it? She said, I'm starting to feel something. I said, try one more and hold as long as you can. Third hit. I said, hold as long as you can. She held it about 15 seconds. I was impressed. I said, are you seeing anything? She said, oh, yeah. (laughs) So I turned up the music. I had Sanatam Kaur, some nice lilting chants going. I said, you just go ahead and go on that journey. When you're awake, you can open your eyes and tell me how you feel. So I saw her moving her head, moving around, and like struggling with something. And after a while, she smiled, and her shoulders went down. She just sat there, and she smiled. And after about 10 minutes, she opened her eyes, and she said, I think he's gone. I said, who? She said, your father. I said, what do you mean? She said, he was like a monster face coming at me. And I realized I didn't just have a difficult time with him. I hated that motherfucker. (laughs) I said, so did I. (laughs) She said, so I just told him, you know what? I used to hate you, but I don't have to hate you anymore. I've got my own life to live now, and you can go away. She said, and he faded, and then all I saw were swirling colors and flowers, and I felt like I touched a piece of heaven. 
And then she started crying and she said, thank you. And she reached over and she hugged me. I talked to her about three days ago and she said, I had never felt like this in my entire life. That was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I love you and thank you. And now I feel like I really talked to my mother for the first time in about 40 years. That's my story. Thanks again for listening to Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Do us a favor. Go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating or review. Tell your friends. That's how you can really help us out. Thanks to Matt Payne who engineered the sound, Joey Whip for the intro music, California Smile for the outro music, and Brian Norman who produced the show. <laughs>